Well, this morning, as we are going to continue in our study of 1 Peter, we get to look at the passage from where that song came. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be reading, starting in verse 3, all the way down to verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, here it is, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we are so privileged to be here on this earth at this time. We are a part of the revelation of your plan of salvation, where we have the privilege of looking back at the cross, rather than looking forward at some mystery that we couldn't figure out, and that we have experienced something that the angels will never experience. Lord, may that just awe us. May we be filled with wonder and praise and worship that we would, our hearts would rejoice even as we walk our way through these verses this morning at our great salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, ever since God set his chosen people apart, from the rest of the world, they have lived as exiles on this earth. In the Old Testament, God promised to provide the nation of Israel a place to settle, Canaan, the promised land. In Genesis 17, 8, God said to Abraham, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That tiny piece of real estate in the Middle East that we know as Israel was referred to as their inheritance. 
And God intended for that inheritance to be divided divided up amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. He said that in Numbers 26, verse 53, among these, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. In fact, God spoke to Moses these words in Numbers 34, verse 1, command the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that, 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 that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to its borders. Well, as you know, while they were wandering in the wilderness those 40 years, Moses disobeyed the command of the Lord, and the Lord was angered by that. And so he said, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 421, now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And then Deuteronomy 31.7, Moses called Joshua since he couldn't go into the promised land. And he said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. Joshua 11 verse 23 recounts the divvying up of the land by Joshua. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. God always intended the land of Canaan to be a place of rest for his people. But as you know, the Israelites deferred that rest by fearing the Canaanites and rebelling against the Lord, which resulted in them having to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Once they finally settled in the land, they forfeited that rest by disobeying the Lord, which resulted in them being ripped out of the land and having to live in exile for 70 years. And granted, these were consequences of their disobedience, but while they wandered through the wilderness and suffered through exile in foreign lands, they were sustained by the hope of someday enjoying again their promised inheritance. I say all that because here in this text that we're looking at today, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Paul used the same Greek word for inheritance that was used in the Septuagint, which is uh, the Greek, old, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, he used that word for Canaan to describe the inheritance that we have as Christians. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. His point was simply this, that just like Israel received an earthly inheritance, we who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood have also been given an inheritance, not an earthly inheritance, but a heavenly inheritance. And even as God's elect exiles like the Israelites, who often find ourselves wrestling with what it feels like to be the special object of God's affections, yet seemingly abandoned by God to wander and suffer in some out-of-the-way place, what should console us and sustain us during our sojourn here on this earth is reflecting on and rejoicing and resting in our great salvation, and specifically our inheritance 
in Christ. One commentator said it this way, this is such an inheritance that the very thoughts and hopes of it are able to sweeten the greatest griefs and afflictions. Well, few Christians have experienced greater griefs and greater afflictions than those Peter was writing to in this letter. These faithful saints were being brutally mistreated. They were even being killed for their commitment to Christ. And so Peter's letter was mainly intended to provide hope for these persecuted believers. And in these opening lines, he reminded them of all that they had to be thankful for as a result of their salvation in Christ. And he called on them to praise God for it and to rejoice in it. And the reason why I read verses 3 all the way down to verse 12, just to settle your hearts, we're not trying to, going to try to get through all those verses this morning, but the reason why I read them together is because in the Greek, this is one long sentence, which indicates that this should be viewed, these verses should be viewed as, a, as one grammatical unit, one uh, uh, flow of thought here. But... Saying that, it naturally breaks up into three divisions, which is helpful for us as we work our way through it together. We see uh, verses 3 through 5 uh, are a unit, verses 6 through 9 are a unit, and verses 10 through 12 are a unit. And so we're going to, Lord willing, tackle this passage uh, looking at those three sections one at a time. Now, essentially, what Peter was doing in this one long sentence in the Greek, he was just pouring out his heart in praise as he contemplated the work of salvation that God had accomplished in his life and also in the lives of those to whom he was writing, including us. And his goal was to help us stand firm and remain steadfast amid the suffering and the persecution of this life by reminding us that, that, that life won't always be this way. This earth is not our home, amen? And so the key to coping with the temporal burdens of this life is remembering the eternal blessings in the life to come. And so this morning, I want us to look at verses three through five, and I want us to see three blessings that every Christian enjoys and or will enjoy that should give us hope while enduring life or experiencing death. And my prayer today is that God, through his spirit, through Peter, would take his hand to your chin and gently lift it towards heaven. So you can see that whatever you're going through right now here on this earth is nothing compared to what you've got waiting for you in heaven. So let's look at these Three blessings, three blessings of salvation. First of all, we see an irresistible rebirth. This is the first blessing of salvation, an irresistible rebirth. Look at verse 3. He begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that word blessed is a common expression that was used both in the Old and New Testaments to give praise to God for who he is and what he had accomplished and so Peter here is, is praising God the Father as the author of our salvation. This is how Paul began a number of his letters, 
Same exact way, 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed is the word eulogia in the Greek, which sounds like what English word? Eulogy. We've all been to a funeral or a memorial service where there's a eulogy. And what is the purpose of the eulogy? The, the eulogy is to say all sorts of nice things about that person, right? It's basically sing, an opportunity to sing their praise. And so that's what we're doing. Whenever we bless God, we were, we're singing his praise. We're declaring that he's worthy to be praised for sovereignly ordaining and orchestrating our salvation. And ultimately, that is the reason why God saved us. So that he would get praise, that he would be given the glory for our salvation. That's exactly what Paul said three times in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, so that we were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14 talks about how we've been given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So our salvation is not about us, it's about God. And he deserves all the glory for it. And so he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter emphasized Christ's deity. And you remember that Jesus was the first one to call God his Father, And it freaked everybody out because they understood what he was saying, that he was making himself, what, equal to God. And that's why they picked up stones and tried to kill him for blasphemy. And so Peter's affirming that, guess what? God is Jesus' father. He is God's son. They are equal. But he also emphasizes humanity In calling him Jesus, that was his human name, and but notice he says, be the God and Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he personalized the intimate relationship that we as believers have with God, the Father, through our connection with his son, Jesus Christ. And notice he he called Jesus by his three names, if you will. He didn't just call him Lord, he didn't just call him Jesus, he didn't just call him Messiah, he called him the Lord Jesus Christ, implying that he is not only the master, he's not only a man, he is also the Messiah, all in one. And then the following phrase is why I chose to title this first section, Irresistible Rebirth. And those of you that have studied Reformed theology, you already know where I'm going with this. Because it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Peter explained what motivated God the Father to save us. It wasn't based on who we are or what we have done. It was actually in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. All of us deserve to die and go to hell because of our sinful rebellion against God. 
If you were here during our study of the book of Romans, that was the point that, that Paul made at the very beginning of the letter in chapters 1, 2, 3, even all the way into chapter 6. He talked about how we have rebelled against the Lord and not given him honor and thanks and worshiped ourselves instead of worshiping the Lord. And because of that, we deserve his wrath. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. But God, in his great mercy, looked down on our helpless, hopeless condition and had pity on us and chose to spare us from his wrath. In other words, he didn't give us what we deserved. That's a simple definition of mercy. And in chapter 2, he says this in verse 10. He said, you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Again, you may remember from our study of Romans, Romans chapter 9, verse 15, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has what? Mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus uses, well, I should say Paul used the word in that verse that Peter was describing. It's the word regeneration. Peter used the word or the term to describe our salvation as being born again. They're synonymous terms. And I think it's possible that Peter was, was privy to Jesus' private conversation with Nicodemus, uh, that midnight meeting about how Nicodemus had to be born again. Remember that? John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking on a, on a physical level. And Jesus was, no, I'm talking about a, a, a spiritual rebirth here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus was describing the doctrine of regeneration. Peter was affirming that. You say, what's regeneration? Regeneration is the act of the Holy Spirit whereby means of the word of God, he brings those who are spiritually dead back to life. One of the foundational passages from which we get that definition is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, we wanted absolutely nothing to do with God. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The point being, none of us are born into the family of God. That's a, that's a misunderstanding, a misconception that a lot of people have in this world. Oh, we're all God's children. If you live on this earth, you're one of God's children. That is not true. We are not born into the family of God. We are all born enemies of God and belong to the family of Satan. We're born children of the devil. First John talks about that. And we are the objects of God's wrath. That's the bad news. The good news is that God in his mercy grants us a second birth and adopts us as his children so we can enjoy all the rights and the privilege of being a co-heir with Christ. Romans chapter 8 talks about that, Galatians chapter 4. And because of the language that Peter used here, that God caused us to be born again, I chose to label this first blessing, irresistible rebirth, because I think verse 3 is, is the basis for what is known in Reformed theology as irresistible grace. If you're, if you're familiar with the, the tulip, right, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. For those of you that may not be familiar with that, irresistible grace or efficacious grace, in other words, God's grace is effective, it accomplishes its purposes, it's probably a better term than irresistible grace because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding surrounding what irresistible grace means. I'll talk about it in a moment. So I, I prefer efficacious grace, which, which simply summarizes what the Bible teaches about the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and makes us willing to repent and believe. He causes us to be saved. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, you weren't children of God before. You had to become a child of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, here's the born-again language, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, not our will. Romans 9.16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. So we say that God's grace is irresistible or efficacious because it always brings forth its desired result. In other words, if God has chosen you for salvation, you're going to get saved no matter what. Now this doesn't mean that God drags people kicking and screaming into heaven against their will. It also doesn't mean that we cannot resist God's grace, 
Even true Christians can quench the spirit and grieve the spirit. Is that not true? What it does mean, though, is that God sets our wills free from bondage to sin so that we willingly come to Christ. Until a person is regenerated or born again, as Peter says here, they naturally resist the gospel and don't want anything to do with Christ. But if they are one of God's elect, God, by his sovereign grace, will inevitably and irresistibly draw them to Christ. So the bottom line is regeneration must occur before repentance and faith. In other words, we must be born again. We must be regenerated. God must breathe life back into us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You can't do anything as a dead man. A dead man can do nothing. And so he must bring us back to life and then grant us a willingness to repent and believe. I'm sure you're aware that the late R.C. Sproul was probably the greatest champion of Reformed theology in, in modern times. He was a gift from God to the church. And um, I love reading his, his books and listening to him so eloquently and sometimes over my head ways describing right, the truth of God's word. But listen to what he had to say here about irresistible grace. He said this, quote, when God created you, he brought you into existence. You didn't help him. It was his sovereign work that brought you to life biologically. Likewise, it is his work and his alone that brings you into a state of rebirth and of renewed creation. Hence, we call this irresistible grace. It's grace that works. It's grace that brings about what God wants it to bring about. If indeed we are dead in sins and trespasses, if indeed our wills are held captive by the lust of our flesh and we need to be liberated from our flesh in order to be saved, then in the final analysis, salvation must be something that God does in us and for us, not something that we in any way do for ourselves. God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we're willing. God melts the hardness of our hearts when he makes us new creatures. The Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. The reason we want to come to Christ is because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. And without that work, we would never have any desire to come to Christ. I think that's a very accurate explanation of the teaching of Scripture. Now, if you're interested in learning more about man's free will, right, because that's the sticking point always when it comes to this discussion, um, I talked quite a bit about that. Um, in the series that we did on Romans 9 called Unconditional Election. And you can go online and look up those messages and, and listen some more about that. But I think that's enough for now on this text. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, who according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Now, the biblical term for hope is not the same 
term that we use for hope. When we say, we use the word hope, we say things like, I hope the weather is nice tomorrow because we've got this or that planned. Um, or, or I hope everything goes well at this whatever. It's, it's a hope so. It's more of a hope so hope. Whereas biblical hope is an eager expectation, a, a confident assurance that God's promises will come true. In this case, what Peter was saying is that because we've been born again, we have the confidence that our sin is forgiven, and we have the assurance that we're going to go to heaven when we die. The writer of Hebrews likens this hope to an anchor. He says in Hebrews 6, verse 18, have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. In other words, our anchor is not just off there somewhere or off there somewhere. Our anchor is in heaven. Our anchor is Behind the veil, the Holy of Holies, where Jesus went. He's the high, the great high priest. And the fact that he's in heaven as the high priest is a reminder that guess where he's not? He's not still in the tomb. He's still not in the grave. And the reason we can be so sure of all of this is because God raised Jesus from the dead, which proved he accepted his work for us. And that's why Peter goes on to say, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The basis of our salvation and the foundation of our living hope is Christ's resurrection. All of God's promises regarding our salvation are confirmed by the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, which proved that God was satisfied with his sacrifice and that his wrath was appeased and that he had conquered death and hell. In fact, look at you're right there in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So based on Christ's resurrection, we can know for sure that we also will experience life after death. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So the fact that Jesus rose, the fact that Jesus reigns in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, and that Jesus will return is the guarantee of our resurrection. And I have to wonder if, as Peter was dictating this portion of his letter, that he was thinking back about his experience with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this briefly in the introduction when we looked at the life of Peter, did kind of an autobiographical or biographical study, I should say, uh, of Peter. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ was really the turning point in, in Peter's life. 
Because when Jesus died on the cross, all of Peter's hopes died with him. And all he was left with were the echoes of his denials just replaying over and over in his head. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And on Easter morning when Peter heard that the tomb was empty, he ran to see for himself. He wanted to see it with his own eyes. And sure enough, he bolted, you know, bolted into the empty tomb and saw it, and he walked away in wonder. And then at some point after that, Jesus appeared to Peter before any of the other disciples, kind of gave him a special one-on-one appearance. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And hope was instantly restored in Peter's heart and life. And as you know, he was there when Jesus ascended back to heaven. And then just a few weeks later, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and Jesus had promised to send the Holy Spirit to empower them to be his witnesses, and uh, that just launched Peter's ministry on the day of Pentecost. And so it was all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he knew of what he spoke here, of what he wrote. And so that's the first blessing, the, the irresistible rebirth. But there's a second blessing here he goes on to describe, and that's an indestructible inheritance, an indestructible inheritance. Look at verse 4. He said, we have been caused, or God caused us by his mercy to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Again, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this is the same word, inheritance here, that was used in the Septuagint to refer to Israel's inheritance of the promised land. And so Peter was using this word to describe all that we as members of God's family will enjoy in our eternal home in heaven. We're heirs with Christ and we'll receive full full possession of our inheritance whenever Christ returns or calls us home. We're familiar uh, uh, with famous wealthy families where their kids inherit the family fortune, right? Some, some people work for their wealth. Other people just have it handed to them. <laughs> when their parents die, right, they, they get all their wealth. Well, the, the inheritance that we are going to receive as God's children is unlike any earthly inheritance we have ever heard about or will ever hear about. Some of you might think, well, man, I wish I was a Walton. Get some of that, you know, um, Walmart stock in my portfolio. Man, that'd be sweet. I'd have it made in the shade. Well, listen, you don't even know. That doesn't even come close. You can add up all the, the wealthiest fortunes in the world, and they don't even begin to compare with the extraordinary inheritance that we will receive when we get to heaven. In fact, it's so extraordinary, there are no words to describe it. Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, says, things which eye has seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, there's, there's no words to describe what God has in store for us. And so here, Peter, rather than trying to explain what our inheritance in heaven will be like, 
It's like he resorted to explaining what it won't be like. In other words, it was easier to explain what it's not like than to try to figure out how to explain what it is like. And he used three words to describe our heavenly inheritance. Notice, he says, to to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. In other words, it can never be destroyed. It's death-proof. And not only is it imperishable, but notice it's undefiled. It can't ever be corrupted. It's, it's sin-proof. And then lastly, he says, it will not fade away. It won't ever be diminished. In other words, it's, it's time-proof. So our heavenly inheritance, whatever it is, is untouched by death. It's unstained by evil, and it's unimpaired by time. In other words, it's unlike anything we have ever known here on this earth. None of these things are true of of any earthly inheritance that you may have received or might receive in the future. Earthly inheritances are, are uncertain because they're subject to change. They're subject to loss. They could get burned up. They could get stolen. They, they could be contested by relatives or, or legal authorities. Their values could fluctuate based on the economy, based on the stock market. But our heavenly inheritance is impervious to any of these things. It's permanent and it's unchanging and it's kept totally secure in the vault of heaven until we get there. Notice he says here, to to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You've always, uh, you're familiar with the scene in the movie where the, the, the star, whatever, the star character shows up to the bank and he wants to uh, uh, see what's in his safe deposit box, Right? that's been sitting there for years, and so he has this key, and he goes in, and he hands the key and the, the information, the code, or whatever, the, the uh, uh, what do you call that thing? The, the combination, right? And uh, he opens the thing, and he sees what's in there. Well, what Peter says here is that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It's, it's being guarded and protected, get this, in a sinless, timeless realm. There's no time in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. And so Peter, if you remember, heard Jesus talk about how the treasure that we lay up in heaven is not affected by the ravages of sin and time. Matthew 6.19, Chris just preached a great message on just a couple weeks ago. Matthew 6.19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. We don't know anything like that experience here on this earth. All we know about is mothballs. Do we even use mothballs anymore? Some of the kids are like, what's a mothball? Um, Rust-oleum, right? Locks on our doors, guns in our, you know, nightstand, right? Or on our person right now. That's just, that's the world in which we live. One commentator said it this way, heaven is the securest place in all the universe. So our inheritance is 
completely, 100% safe and secure. Now, perhaps Peter, because of his own experience, anticipated someone saying, that's great, but what if I don't make it to heaven to enjoy it? What if my faith fails? What if the persecution becomes so severe that my commitment to Christ cracks or I cave to the pressure? What if I fall away from the Lord like so many well-known pastors and musicians have been doing in recent days? Young people, I hope you're, uh, you're watchful and mindful of those things. Those are very instructive. Go to school on those. Learn from those But I think Peter could relate. You remember in Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your, what? Faith may not fail. Peter wanted us to know that God not only keeps our inheritance for us, but at the same time, he keeps us for our inheritance. He guards our inheritance and guards us so we can enjoy it. As one commentator said so practically, God plans the party and makes sure we make it to the party. And that's the third blessing here in verse 5 that we have as Christians. We have an invincible guardian. We have an invincible guardian. Look at verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So both our inheritance and we as the heirs are being protected and being preserved by God's power. That word protected there or shielded, you might have in your translation, it is a military term described, uh, which described how soldiers uh, would guard someone. And the fact that Peter used the, the present tense here emphasized the, the continual nature of this protection. It's, it's happening all the time. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. It's like we're in protective custody, God's protective custody. No better protective custody to be in than God's. You understand that expression, right? You, we, we know of people or we watch movies about people that uh, have sensitive information and whatever, and, and so they have to be placed in protective custody because somebody wants to get them. There's hostile enemies that are trying to, to kill them, and so they have to be placed in protective custody. We live in a hostile world, but guess what? We live in protective custody, and no one can penetrate God's defense system, if you will. Or perhaps you'd rather see yourself having a personal bodyguard. God is your personal bodyguard, or maybe surrounded by, by secret service everywhere you go, like the president, constantly being watched and protected. Or maybe you just like a simple image of a sheep whose every move is being watched by a perfectly attentive, all-powerful shepherd to make sure that you make it safely home. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we are constantly being monitored by the most sophisticated surveillance system in the universe, the omniscience, right, and the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God, the three omnis, that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's everywhere. You can't get a more sophisticated surveillance system than that. And God is carefully watching over us to make sure nothing or no one ever harms us or destroys us. And the fact that it is the power of God here, you notice, that, notice he emphasized that, protected by the power of God. An omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, cannot and will not be overthrown or overpowered by anyone or anything. That's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we are completely safe in the arms of God. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, no matter how chronic or acute it may be, no disorder, no disease, no defect, not even death can hinder or remove God's hand of protection in our lives. This is where we draw our doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved or the preservation of the saints. I say it like that because I think that's better than the perseverance of the saints. It's actually the perseverance of the saints. It's actually the preservation of the saints. And as part of God's preserving grace in our lives, he grants us the faith to persevere through the trials and tribulations of life that threaten to pull us away from him. Notice what he says there, who are protected by the power of God through faith. We're ultimately kept safe and secure in Christ by the faith and strength that he provides for us. In other words, no one who is truly saved can ever lose their salvation. Now granted, if someone walks away from Christ permanently, that's proof that they were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never one of us. Some of those well-known believers or professing believers who have experienced some deconstruction of their faith, hey, the jury's still out. As long as they have breath, as, still, as, soon as, as long as Jesus hasn't returned, they could still repent and come back and prove themselves to be genuine believers. Again, Peter's point here, I think, is simple. 
He wanted us to know that we can be absolutely confident that God will see us through until the day we make it to heaven. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in us will carry it to what? Completion, will bring it to pass. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, the Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Faith is a gift of God's grace by which we receive and rest in Christ for salvation. And, then, and, and, and we need to understand this as well, and this is what Peter's saying, that God preserves our faith until our earthly pilgrim, pilgrimage is finally complete and our faith becomes sight. You say, when is, when is that going to happen? Well, Peter says, ultimately, that's going to happen in the last time. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Interesting, he refers to our salvation in the future tense. You say, well, I thought we were already saved. Well, we are, in one sense, Right? We have been saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we still deal with the presence of sin, right? And so someday we're going to experience the salvation, salvation, I should say, from the presence of sin at the return of Christ, when our bodies will be instantly changed and will be glorified and will be forever free from sin, suffering, and death. I think that's what Peter had in view here when he talked about the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We long for that day, don't we? We look forward to that day when we don't ever have to deal with sin ever again. It'll be gone forever, along with its consequences, right? Tears, grief, suffering, death. So how would Peter have us respond? This morning, how would God want us to respond to what we've looked at this morning? Well, I think the very next verse tells us, in this, in this irresistible grace, in this indestructible inheritance, in this invincible guardian, we are to greatly rejoice. And so as we reflect on these blessings that every Christian enjoys or will enjoy, it, it should cause us to respond with great joy, especially when we feel like a lonely outcast in this world, when we feel like that redheaded stepchild. Remember, we're talking about that? Or we feel like we don't have the strength to take another step in this earthly journey. God, I can't do it. I can't, I can't go any further. I'm done. Get me out of here. Now. Peter was calling us to rejoice 
and to rest in God's saving work and to keep our hope fixed on our inheritance in heaven. And I would remind you that that inheritance is not merely kept by the Lord, it actually is the Lord himself. I don't know what you're looking forward to about heaven, but I hope it's not your mansion. Because that's not what heaven's going to be all about. In fact, the book of Revelation says, describes heaven and says there's no temple. Why? Because Jesus is there. You don't need a temple. There's no sun. You don't need a sun. Why? Because Jesus is there. You don't need anything else in heaven but Jesus. And I think it's interesting when you go back to the Old Testament, and we began this morning talking about the inheritance, right, that the nation of Israel received from the Lord, the, the, the portion of the land of Israel according to their tribe. But when it came to the tribe of Levi, uh, Aaron was the, the father of the Levite tribe, the Lord said to Aaron, this is Numbers 18, 20, you shall have no inheritance in their land nor any portion among them. And if I was Aaron, I'd be like, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. Everybody else is getting their piece of the pie. I don't get an inheritance. Our, my, my tribe, our tribe doesn't, my, my uh, you know, uh, descendants don't get a piece of the land, some property, some real estate. Then the Lord said this, you, you shall have no inheritance in the land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance. Well, at that point, Aaron was probably like, well, that's cool. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, forget about it. I don't, I, don't, I don't need the stuff. I get you. The psalmist picked up that theme Psalmist talked about the Lord being his portion, his inheritance. And then I love how the prophet Jeremiah said it. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, this is the prophet Jeremiah. Talk about somebody who had a hard life. Talk about somebody who, who, who got put through the ringer. The people didn't want to hear anything he had to say. They were violent. They were aggressive. They would beat him up and throw him down in, in, the, in a pit. Shut up, preacher. We don't want to hear what you have to tell us. And yet he would keep coming back and being faithful to speak the word of God to these stubborn, stiff-necked people. And then he asked, had to watch the judgment of God come to fruition. What he had prophesied would happen, that Babylon would come and destroy Judah and destroy Jerusalem and burn down the temple and he was left to watch all that. And that's when he wrote the book of Lamentations. He was lamenting. He was mourning. And in the heart of that book, as he was sitting there seeing everything that he had loved and fought for destroyed, literally going up in smoke, he said this, Lamentations 3.24, the Lord is my portion says my soul, and therefore I have hope in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that 
you are ultimately what our heart longs for. It's not all the stuff of this world and not even the stuff that perhaps we are curious about that we'll experience in heaven. But based on what we see in your word, all that stuff, not just on earth, but in heaven even, is going to pale in comparison to the fact that we're in your presence. And so, Lord, I pray as we wait for that day and long for that day in this increasingly hostile place that you've called us to live as your aliens, as your ambassadors, that we would keep our eyes fixed on heaven, that our hope would be there like that anchor behind the veil, that uh, no matter what, how we get blown and tossed around here on this earth, that uh, we know that we're secure, that we're connected, we have a, an eternal connection with you that can't be broken. And so, Lord, give us joy. Help us to rejoice greatly as Peter exhorted us to do here. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.